The Dead Smile, Part Two of Two. Gabriel Ockram became Sir Gabriel, inheriting the baronessy with the half-ruined fortune left by his father, and Evelyn Warburton continued to live in Ockram Hall, in the south room that had been hers ever since she could remember. She couldn't go away, for there were no relatives to whom she could have gone, and besides, there seemed to be no reason why she should not stay. The world would never trouble itself to care what the Ockrams did on their Irish estates. It was long since the Ockrams had asked anything of the world. So Sir Gabriel took his father's place at the dark old table in the dining room, and Evelyn sat opposite to him, until such time as their mourning should be over, and they might be married at last. Meanwhile, their lives went on as before, since Sir Hugh had been a hopeless invalid during the last year of his life, and they had seen him but once a day for a little while, spending most of their time together in a strangely perfect companionship. Though the late summer saddened into autumn, and autumn darkened into winter, and storm followed storm and rain poured on rain through the short days and the long nights, Ockram Hall seemed less gloomy since Sir Hugh had been laid in the north vault beside his father. At Christmas tide, Evelyn decked the great hall with holly and green boughs. Huge fires blazed on every hearth. The tenants were all bid to come to a New Year's dinner at which they ate and drank well, while Sir Gabriel sat at the head of the table. Evelyn came in when the port wine was brought, and the most respected of the tenants made a speech to her health. When the speechmaker said it had been a long time since there had been a Lady Ockram, Sir Gabriel shaded his eyes with his hand and looked down at the table. A faint color came into Evelyn's transparent cheeks, and, said the gray-haired farmer, it was longer still since there had been a Lady Ockram so fair as the next was to be, and he drank to the health of Evelyn Warburton. Then the tenants all stood up and shouted for her. Sir Gabriel stood up likewise, beside Evelyn, but when the men gave the last and loudest cheer of all, there was a voice not theirs above them all, higher, fiercer, louder, an unearthly scream shrieking for the bride of Ockram Hall. It was so loud that the holly and the green boughs over the great chimney shook and waved as if a cool breeze were blowing over them. The men turned very pale. Many of them set down their glasses, but others let them fall upon the floor. Looking into one another's faces, they saw that they were all smiling strangely, a dead smile, like dead Sir Hughes. The fear of death was suddenly upon them all, so that they fled in a panic, falling over one another like wild beasts in the burning forest when the thick smoke runs along before the flame. Tables were overturned, drinking glasses and bottles were broken in heaps, and dark red wine crawled like blood upon the polished floor. Sir Gabriel and Evelyn were left standing alone at the head of the table before the wreck of their feast, not daring to turn to look at one another, for each knew that the other smiled. But Gabriel's right arm held her, and his left one clasped her tightly as they stared before them. But for the shadows of her hair, one might not have told their two faces apart. They listened long, but the cry came not again and eventually the dead smile faded from their lips as each remembered that Sir Hugh Ockram lay in the north vault, smiling in his winding sheet, in the dark because he had died with his secret. 
So ended the tenants' New Year's dinner. But from that time on, Sir Gabriel grew more and more silent, and his face grew even paler and thinner than before. Often, without warning and without words, he would rise from his seat as if something moved him against his will. He would go out into the rain or the sunshine to the north side of the chapel, sit on the stone bench and stare at the ground as if he could see through it, through the vault below and through the white winding sheet in the dark, to the dead smile that would not die. Always, when he went out in that way, Evelyn would come out presently and sit beside him. Once, as in the past, their beautiful faces came suddenly near. Their lids drooped, and their red lips were almost joined together. But as their eyes met, they grew wide and wild, so that the white showed in a ring all around the deep violet. Their teeth chattered, and their hands were like the hands of corpses, for fear of what was under their feet, and of what they knew but could not see. Once Evelyn found Sir Gabriel in the chapel alone, standing before the iron door that led down to the place of death, with the key to the door in his hand. But he hadn't put it into the lock. Evelyn drew him away, shivering, for she had also been driven, in waking dreams, to see that terrible thing again, and to find out whether it had changed since it had been laid there. I'm going mad, said Sir Gabriel, covering his eyes with his hand as he went with her. I see it in my sleep. I see it when I'm awake. It draws me to it, day and night, and unless I see it, I shall die. I know, answered Evelyn. I know. It's as if threads were spun from it like a spider's, drawing us down to it. She was silent for a moment and grasped his arm with a man's strength and almost screamed the words she spoke. But we must not go there, she cried. We must not go. Sir Gabriel's eyes were half shut, and he was not moved by the agony of her face. I shall die unless I see it again, he said, in a quiet voice not like his own. And all that day and that evening he scarcely spoke, thinking of it, always thinking, while Evelyn Warburton quivered from head to foot with a terror she had never known. One gray winter morning, she went alone to Nurse MacDonald's room in the tower and sat down beside the great leather easy chair, laying her thin white hand upon the withered fingers. Nurse, she said, what was it that Uncle Hugh should have told you that night before he died? It must have been an awful secret. And yet, though you asked him, I feel somehow that you know it and that you know why he used to smile so dreadfully. The old woman's head moved slowly from side to side. I only guess. I shall never know. She answered slowly in her cracked little voice. But what do you guess? Who am I? Why did you ask who my father was? You know I am Colonel Warburton's daughter, and my mother was Lady Ockram's sister, so that Gabriel and I are cousins. My father was killed in Afghanistan. What secret can there be? I do not know. I can only guess. Guess what? Asked Evelyn imploringly, pressing the soft, withered hands as she leaned forward. 
but Nurse MacDonald's wrinkled lids dropped suddenly over her queer blue eyes, and her lips shook a little with her breath, as if she were asleep. Evelyn waited. By the fire, the Irish maid was knitting fast. Her needles clicked like three or four clocks ticking against each other. But the real clock on the wall solemnly ticked alone, checking off the seconds of the woman who was a hundred years old and had not many days left. Outside, the ivy branch beat the window in the wintry blast as it had beaten against the glass a hundred years ago. Then, as Evelyn sat there, she felt again the waking of a horrible desire, the sickening wish to go down, down to the thing in the north vault, and to open the winding sheet and see whether it had changed. And she held Nurse MacDonald's hands as if to keep herself in her place and fight against the appalling attraction of the evil dead. But the old cat that kept Nurse MacDonald's feet warm, lying always on the footstool, got up and stretched itself and looked up into Evelyn's eyes while its back arched and its tail thickened and bristled and its ugly pink lips drew back in a devilish grin, showing its sharp teeth. Evelyn stared at it, half fascinated by its ugliness. Then the creature suddenly put out one paw with all its claws spread and spat at the girl. All at once the grinning cat was like the smiling corpse far down below. Evelyn shivered down to her small feet and covered her face with her free hand, lest Nurse MacDonald should wake and see the dead smile there, for she could feel it. The old woman had already opened her eyes again, and she touched her cat with the end of her crutch stick, whereupon its back went down and its tail shrunk, and it sidled back to its place on the footstool but its yellow eyes looked up sideways at Evelyn between the slits of its lids. "'What is it that you guess, nurse?' asked the young girl again. "'A bad thing. A wicked thing. But I dare not tell you, lest it might not be true, and the very thought should blast your life. For if I guess right, he meant that you should not know.' and that you two should marry and pay for his old sin with your souls. He used to tell us that we ought not to marry. Yes, he told you that, perhaps. But it was as if a man put poison of meat before a starving beast and said, do not eat, but never raised his hand to take the meat away. And if he told you that you should not marry, it was because he hoped you would. For of all men, living or dead, Hugh Ockram was the falsest man that ever told a cowardly lie, and the crudest that ever hurt a weak woman, and the worst that ever loved a sin. But Gabriel and I love each other, said Evelyn very sadly. Nurse MacDonald's old eyes looked far away, its sight seen long ago, and that rose in the gray winter air amid the mists of an ancient youth. If you love, you can die together, she said very slowly. Why should you live, if it is true? I am a hundred years old, what has life given me? The beginning is fire, 
the end is a heap of ashes, and between the end and the beginning lies all the pain of the world. Let me sleep, since I cannot die. Then the old woman's eyes closed again, and her head sank a little lower upon her breast. So Evelyn went away and left her asleep, with the cat asleep on the footstool. The young girl tried to forget Nurse MacDonald's words, but she could not, for she heard them over and over again in the wind and behind her on the stairs, and as she grew sick with fear of the frightful unknown evil to which her soul was bound, she felt a bodily something pressing her, pushing her, forcing her on from the other side. She felt threads that drew her mysteriously, and when she shut her eyes, she saw in the chapel behind the altar the low iron door through which she must pass to go to the thing. As she lay awake at night, she drew the sheet over her face, lest she should see shadows on the wall beckoning to her. The sound of her own warm breath made whisperings in her ears, while she held the mattress with her hands to keep from getting up and going to the chapel. It would have been easier if there had not been a way thither through the library, by a door which was never locked. It would be fearfully easy to take her candle and go softly through the sleeping house. The key of the vault lay under the altar behind a stone that turned. She knew that little secret. She could go alone and see. But when she thought of it, she felt her hair rise on her head. She shivered so that the bed shook. Then the horror went through her in a cold thrill that was agony again, like a myriad of icy needles boring into her nerves. The old clock in Nurse MacDonald's tower struck midnight. From her room she could hear the creaking chains and weights in their box in the corner of the staircase, and the jarring of the rusty lever that lifted the hammer. She had heard it all her life. It struck eleven strokes clearly, and then came the twelfth with a dull half-stroke, as though the hammer were too weary to go on and had fallen asleep against the bell. The old cat got up from the footstool and stretched itself. Nurse MacDonald opened her ancient eyes and looked slowly around the room by the dim light of the night lamp. She touched her cat with her crutch stick, and it lay down upon her feet. She drank a few drops from her cup and went to sleep again. But downstairs, Sir Gabriel sat straight up as the clock struck, for he had dreamed a fearful dream of horror, and his heart stood still. He awoke at its stopping, and it beat again furiously with his breath, like a wild thing set free. No Ockram had ever known fear waking, but sometimes it came to Sir Gabriel in his sleep. He pressed his hands to his temples as he sat up in bed. His hands were icy cold, but his head was hot. The dream faded far, and in its place there came the master thought that racked his life. With the thought also came the sick twisting of his lips in the dark, that would have been a smile. Far off, Evelyn Warburton dreamed that the dead smile was on her mouth, and awoke, startling with a little moan, her face in her hands, shivering. But Sir Gabriel struck a light and got up, and began to walk up and down his great room. It was midnight, and he had barely slept an hour, and in the north of Ireland the winter nights are long. I shall go mad he said to himself, holding his forehead 
He knew that it was true. For weeks and months, the possession of the thing had grown upon him like a disease, till he could think of nothing without thinking first of that. And now all at once it outgrew his strength, and he knew that he must be its instrument or lose his mind. He knew that he must do the deed he hated and feared, if he could fear anything, or that something would snap in his brain and divide him from life while he was yet alive. He took the candlestick in his hand, the old-fashioned heavy candlestick that had always been used by the head of the house. He did not think of dressing, but went as he was, in his silk nightclothes and his slippers, and opened the door. Everything was very still in the great old house. He shut the door behind him and walked noiselessly on the carpet through the long corridor. A cool breeze blew over his shoulder and blew the flame of his candle straight out. Instinctively, he stopped and looked around, but all was still, and the upright flame burned steadily. He walked on, and instantly a strong draft was behind him, almost extinguishing the light. It seemed to blow him on his way, ceasing whenever he turned, coming again when he went on, invisible, icy. Down the great staircase to the echoing hall he went, seeing nothing but the flaring flame of the candle standing away from him over the guttering wax. The cold wind blew over his shoulder and through his hair. On he passed through the open door into the library, dark with old books and carved bookcases. On he went through the door with shelves and the imitated backs of books painted on it, which shut itself after him with a soft click. He entered the low-arched passage, and though the door was shut behind him and fitted tightly in its frame, still the cold breeze blew the flame forward as he walked. He was not afraid, but his face was very pale, and his eyes were wide and bright, seeing already in the dark air the picture of the thing beyond. But in the chapel he stood still, his hand on the little turning stone tablet in the back of the stone altar. On the tablet were engraved the words, Clavis Sepulchri Classimorum Dominorum de Ockram, the key to the vault of the most illustrious lords of Ockram. Sir Gabriel paused and listened. He fancied that he heard a sound far off in the great house where all had been so still, but it didn't come again. Yet he waited at the last and looked at the low iron door. Beyond it, down the long descent, lay his father uncoffined, six months dead, corrupt, terrible in his clinging shroud. The strangely preserving air of the vault could not have done its work completely, but on the thing's ghastly features, with their half-dried, open eyes, there would still be the frightful smile with which the man had died, the smile that haunted. As the thought crossed Sir Gabriel's mind, he felt his lips writhing, and he struck his own mouth in wrath with the back of his hand so fiercely that a drop of blood ran down his chin, and another and more falling back in the gloom upon the chapel pavement. But still his bruised lips twisted themselves. He turned the tablet by the simple secret. It needed no safer fastening, for had each Akram been coffined in pure gold, and had the door been open wide, there was not a man in Tyrone brave enough to go down to that place, save Gabriel Akram himself with his angel's face, his thin white hands, and his sad, unflinching eyes. He took the great old key and set it into the lock of the iron door. 
The heavy, rattling noise echoed down the descent beyond like footsteps, as if a watcher had stood behind the iron and were running away with them, with heavy, dead feet. And though he was still standing, the cool wind was from behind him and blew the flame of the candle against the iron panel. He turned the key. Sir Gabriel saw that his candle was short. There were new ones on the altar with long candlesticks, so he lit one and left his own burning on the floor. As he set it down on the pavement, his lip began to bleed again, and another drop fell upon the stones. He drew the iron door open and pushed it back against the chapel wall so that it should not shut of itself while he was within. And the horrible draft of the sepulchre came up out of the depths in his face, foul and dark. He went in, but though the fetid air met him, yet the flame of the tall candle was blown straight from him against the wind while he walked down the easy incline with steady steps, his loose slippers slapping the pavement as he trod. He shaded the candle with his hand, and his fingers seemed to be made of wax and blood as the light shone through them. And in spite of him, the unearthly draft forced the flame forward till it was blue over the black wick, and it seemed as if it must go out, but he went straight on with shining eyes. The downward passage was wide, and he couldn't always see the walls by the struggling light, but he knew when he was in the place of death by the larger, drearier echo of his steps in the greater space, and by the sensation of a distant blank wall. He stood still, almost enclosing the flame of the candle in the hollow of his hand. He could see a little, for his eyes were growing used to the gloom. Shadowy forms were outlined in the dimness, where the beers of the Ockram stood crowded together, side by side, each with its straight, shrouded corpse, strangely preserved by the dry air, like the empty shell that the locust sheds in summer. And a few steps before him he saw clearly the dark shape of headless Sir Vernon's iron coffin. And he knew that nearest to it lay the thing he sought. He was as brave as any of those dead men had been. They were his father's, and he knew that sooner or later he should lie there himself, beside Sir Hugh, slowly drying to a parchment shell. But as yet, he was still alive. He closed his eyes a moment as three great drops stood on his forehead. Then he looked again, and by the whiteness of the winding sheet he knew his father's corpse, for all the others were brown with age and moreover the flame of the candle was blown toward it. He made four steps till he reached it, and suddenly the light burned straight and high, shedding a dazzling yellow glare upon the fine linen that was all white, save over the face, and where the joined hands were laid on the breast, and at those places ugly stains had spread, darkened with outlines of the features and of the tight-clasped fingers. There was a frightful stench of drying death. As Sir Gabriel looked down, something stirred behind him, softly at first, then more noisily, and something fell to the stone floor with a dull thud and rolled up to his feet. He started back and saw a withered head lying almost face upward on the pavement, grinning at him. He felt the cold sweat standing on his face, and his heart beat painfully. For the first time in all his life, that evil thing which men call fear was getting hold of him, checking his heartstrings as a cruel driver checks a quivering horse, clawing at his backbone with icy hands, lifting his hair with freezing breath, 
climbing up and gathering in his midriff with leaden weight. Yet he bit his lip and bent down, holding the candle in one hand, to lift the shroud back from the head of the corpse with the other. Slowly, he lifted it. It clove to the half-dried skin of the face, and his hand shook as if someone had struck him on the elbow. But half in fear and half in anger at himself, he pulled it so that it came away with a little ripping sound. He caught his breath as he held it, not yet throwing it back and not yet looking. The horror was working in him, and he felt that old Vernon Ockram was standing up in his iron coffin, headless, yet watching him with the stump of his severed neck. While he held his breath, he felt the dead smile twisting his lips. In sudden wrath at his own misery, he tossed the death-stained linen backward and looked at last. He ground his teeth, lest he should shriek aloud. There it was, the thing that haunted him, that haunted Evelyn Warburton, that was like a blight on all that came near him. The dead face was blotched with dark stains, and the thin gray hair was matted about the discolored forehead. The sunken lids were half open, and the candlelight gleamed on something foul where the toad eyes had lived. But yet the dead thing smiled, as it had smiled in life. The ghastly lips were parted and drawn wide and tied upon the wolfish teeth, cursing still, and still defying hell to do its worst. Defying, cursing, and always and forever smiling alone in the dark. Sir Gabriel opened the sheet where the hands were. The blackened, withered fingers were closed upon something stained and mottled. Shivering from head to foot, but fighting like a man in agony for his life, he tried to take the package from the dead man's hold. But as he pulled at it, the claw-like fingers seemed to close more tightly. When he pulled harder, the shrunken hands and arms rose from the corpse with a horrible look of life following his motion. Then, as he wrenched the sealed packet loose at last, the hands fell back into their place still folded. He set down the candle on the edge of the beer to break the seals from the stout paper. Kneeling on one knee to get a better light, he read what was within, written long ago in Sir Hugh's queer hand. He was no longer afraid. He read how Sir Hugh had written it all down that it might perchance be a witness of evil and of his hatred. He had written how he had loved Evelyn Warburton, his wife's sister, and how his wife had died of a broken heart with his curse upon her. He wrote how Warburton and he had fought side by side in Afghanistan, and Warburton had fallen. But Akram had brought his comrade's wife back a full year later, and little Evelyn, her child, had been born in Akram Hall and he wrote how he had wearied of the mother, and she had died like her sister with his curse on her, and how Evelyn had been brought up as his niece, and how he had trusted that his son Gabriel and his daughter, innocent and unknowing, might love and marry, and the souls of the women he had betrayed might suffer yet another anguish before eternity was out. And last of all, he hoped that someday, when nothing could be undone, the two might find his writing and live on as man and wife, not daring to tell the truth for their children's sake and the world's word. This he read, kneeling beside the corpse in the north vault, by the light of the altar candle. He had read it all, and then he thanked God aloud that he had found the secret in time. When he finally rose to his feet and looked down at the dead face, it had changed. The smile was gone from it. The jaw had fallen a little 
and the tired, dead lips were relaxed. And then there was a breath behind him and close to him, not cold like that which had blown the flame of the candle as he came, but warm and human. He turned suddenly. There she stood, all in white, with her shadowy golden hair. She had risen from her bed and had followed him noiselessly. When she found him reading, she read over his shoulder. He started violently when he saw her, for his nerves were unstrung. Then he cried out her name in that still place of death. Evelyn! My brother! She answered softly and tenderly, putting out both hands to meet his. Thank you for listening to the Dark Volumes podcast. Please spread the word. Madness does love company. And we'll talk again soon.